Section 11 of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 8 Plotina. If, says Gibbon, a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would without hesitation name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. And he observes of Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius that their united reigns are possibly the only period of history in which the happiness of a great people was the sole object of government. This monumental eulogy of the period which we now approach, a eulogy which the more penetrating study of Renan and the more recent research of M. Boissier and Dr. Dill have not materially lessened, will suffice to warn the inexpert reader against the ancient and popular legend that Rome continued to sink under the burden of its vices until it tottered into the tomb of outworn nations. Under the empresses whom we have now to consider, there was a great improvement of character and recovery of vigor in the Roman Empire. But before we pass to that brighter phase, I would enter a brief protest against the general exaggeration of the darkness of the period we have traversed. Even under its worst rulers, Rome was far from being wholly corrupt. The vices of a Messalina, the crimes of an Agrippina, and the follies of a Poppaea stand out so prominently in that period only because they were perpetrated on the height of the throne. Even they were hardly worse than the crimes and follies of the wives or mistresses of kings in many a less censured period of history. And if you care to count them, the lilies were as numerous as the poppies in this first series of empresses but the lilies drooped earlier and have been less noticed whenever in the course of our story the light has passed from the throne to the less elevated crowd we have found fine character mingled with the corrupt even in the darkest years of the early empire the heads that fell before the imperial monsters were as many as the heads that bowed the truth is that if we are not misled by the hasty generalizations and plebeian diatribes which Juvenal, in his satires, founds upon the dubious bits of gossip that he picked up on the fringe of Roman society, and against which historians now warn us, there was much the same diversity of conduct in the early empire as in most of the corresponding periods of luxury. The wealthier women of Rome assuredly fell far short of the cloistered virtue of the maid and the matron of Greece. But Greece had only succeeded in maintaining that standard of domestic virtue in its wives and daughters by cultivating a high caste of courtesans for their roaming husbands. It may be admitted, too, that the Roman woman was morally inferior to the wife of the Egyptian noble and to the wife of the noble or the wealthy merchant of Babylonia. But the patrician women, even of Caesarean Rome, will compare with the women of most of the later civilizations at the same stage of development, 
at the stage that is to say when the nation relaxes from the strain of empire-making and its veins are flushed with the wealth of its conquests i would instance the women of the early teutonic nations as soon as they settle on southern europe the women of italy in the early middle ages the women of england under the stuarts and after a later expansion under the georges the women of france under louis the thirteenth and louis the fourteenth the women of russia in the nineteenth century at rome in spite of the positive insistence on vice of Caligula, Messalina, and Nero, in spite of their determined effort to weed out the good, we have found virtue and courage springing up afresh in each generation. We now come to a period when, three centuries before the fall of Rome, the empire is purged of its exceptional corruption, and character assumes the normal diversity that it has in any old and wealthy civilization. The city of Rome was assuredly vicious and in decay, but the city was not the empire, as those rhetoricians forget who talk of its entire demoralization. Rome had been drenched with degrading agencies for half a century, but there was a quite normal amount of stout will and high character in the provinces, and this is now infused more freely into the metropolis. It is only by a similar influx of sounder blood from the provinces that any great city survives the feverish waste of its tissue. The remedy was retarded in Rome because the provincials, even of Italy, but especially of Gaul and Spain, were of alien race. Rome jealously remembered that it was the conqueror, the rest were the conquered under vespasian however the provincials were admitted more freely and with the accession of a spaniard trahan the process increased in the remote and primitive settlement which agrippina had established on the banks of the rhine where the towers of cologne cathedral now keep watch over a splendid city there dwelt in the year ninety seven the commander of the forces in lower germany marcus ulpius trahanus with his wife and a few female relatives Trahan was of a moderate Spanish family, and had, like his father, cut his own path in the military service of the empire. He was unambitious but popular, a large handsome man in his forty-fifth year, of singularly graceful bearing and serene features. He charmed everybody by his simplicity and affability of manner, and liked a good carouse and a rough soldierly jest. His wife, Platina, was a plain, honest matron of unknown origin. It has been conjectured that she was related to Pompeius Planta, at one time governor of Egypt, but the only ground for the conjecture seems to be that Planta was a friend of Trahan's. As she had neither beauty of person nor romantic defect of character, the chroniclers have left her largely to our imagination but she was a type of woman whom it is not difficult to picture. A woman of plain features, level judgment, and of what is euphemistically called grave but agreeable conversation. She was by no means brilliant, but her close friendship for Hadrian suggests that she was not too dull and prosy, and had pretensions to culture. 
her ways were simple, and her character can be relieved of the one imputation made against it. She compares well with Livia, but as a higher bourgeoisie compares with a grande dame. In a word, she had none of the autumnal color, the beauty of decay, of the Caesarian women, but she had the less aesthetic and more useful quality that they lacked, conscientiousness. To the courtly Pliny she is the embodiment of all the virtues. With her at Cologne was Trahan's sister, Marciana, a widow of much the same complexion as Plotina, and Marciana's daughter, Matidia, who in turn had two daughters, Sabina and Matidia. We can imagine the agitation of this tranquil establishment among the forests of Germany when a courier came from Rome with the news that Trahan was chosen as colleague of the emperor. They had left Rome six years before, in the middle of Domitian's reign. However, they seemed to have received very sedately the prospect of a removal from the camp on the Rhine to the imperial palace. Although Nerva died in the following January, 98, Trahan remained for the year in Germany, completing his task of strengthening the frontier against the northern barbarians. Then the family set out on the long journey to the capital. The fame of Trahan's simplicity and geniality of manner had preceded him, but Rome looked with surprise on an emperor who could wait a year before occupying the palace, enter the city on foot without guards, and talk so affably with any of his subjects. Nor was Plotina long before she showed that they had received a new type of empress. As she ascended the steps of the palace, she turned round and said to those below, As I enter here to-day, I trust I shall leave it when the time comes. The refreshing amiability, simplicity, and moderation of the imperial couple captivated the Romans, and Trahan responded to their goodwill with the most judicious and untiring exertions in the public service. He trod out at once the hideous brood of informers, checked corrupt officials, and appointed the best men to public offices. Indifferent to the splendor and luxury of even the modest palace of Vespasian, he spent most of his reign in frontier wars, or in long journeys for the purpose of bracing the relaxed frame of the empire, and he enriched and adorned Rome as no emperor had done since Octavian. That he was vigorously supported by Plotina is quite certain, and there is evidence that she was much more than a sympathetic witness of his labors. It is related by the Emperor Julian that Trahan often sought the advice of Plotina, and that it was always sound. At the beginning of his reign she had occasion to use her influence. Trahan's dislike of informers was carried so far that, when a case of real extortion occurred in the provinces, the injured were prevented from bringing it to his notice. They appealed to Plotina, and she put the case judiciously to her husband and secured relief. In many other ways she gave useful assistance, so that the Senate offered the title of Augusta to her and Marciana. They declined, as Trahan had refused the special title offered to him, but he relented, and they followed his example. The reign of Trahan and Plotina was thus one long episode of strenuous and enlightened public service, 
but before we enter into the particulars of their achievements it is proper to endeavor to obtain a nearer view of their personalities in this the chroniclers give us little assistance and the result cannot be very interesting it is ever the painful reflection of the biographer that the description of a sober life a life which neither sinks to the lower levels of vice nor soars to some unaccustomed height of virtue has little interest for the majority of his readers and this was the life of the imperial court during the twenty years of trahan's reign the emperor himself was no paragon preferring the easy ways of a camp he drank somewhat deeply of nights his jests were apt to be coarse and he was popularly accused of the vice which so generally infected the men of the empire yet he had this distinction in a long line of emperors in the prime of life that no woman ever shared or sullied his affection for platina gibbon has remarked in extenuation of the conduct of his successor that of the first fifteen emperors claudius was the only one whose taste in love was entirely correct that would be a high compliment to messalina but in point of fact as we saw claudius was not entitled to that distinction the charge against trahan is vague and we must rather award the distinction to him Marival somewhat harshly speaks of him as only maintaining his self-respect because of the bluntness of his moral sense. If we put his strong sense of public duty and his fidelity in the scale against his one certain indulgence in drink, we shall hardly agree to that verdict. The virtue of Platina, on the other hand, has been more seriously assailed by both ancient and recent writers in the service of the emperor was a very handsome and accomplished youth named hadrian an orphan with great taste and skill in art and letters he had been employed by trahan at cologne both in military service and in filling up the long nights with an occasional carouse and after their return to rome he was a great favorite of the ladies at the palace they formed a little circle in which letters were discussed and literary men were patronized there was something of a literary revival it was the age of juvenal martial quinctilian pliny suetonius celsus and dio chrysostom hadrian was a brilliant student and he appreciated this open and easy way to distinction Trahan is represented as using the young man for companion, but not regarding him as fitted for promotion, so that it fell to Plotina to urge, and ultimately to make, the fortune of the future emperor. The magnificent mausoleum which Hadrian raised in memory of her long testified to his ardent and grateful attachment. There is a good deal of exaggeration in this conception, we shall see that Trahan promoted Hadrian in such a way as to mark him in the eyes of all as his successor, and his chief advisers in this were the statesmen Sura and Atianus. In any case, there is no proof that Plotina, who must have been twenty years older than Hadrian, felt more than a very natural fondness for the gifted and charming youth. Pliny mentions that her friendship for him gave rise to gossip, but insists that she was a most virtuous woman. 
the augustan history leaves her unassailed suetonius has no scandal to report dio alone describes their attachment as erotic love but on an earlier page dio has expressly said that her career was stainless when he has described her standing at the top of the palace steps to say that she trusted to leave that palace just as she entered it he adds and she so bore herself throughout the whole reign as to incur no blame the remarkable eulogy of pliny the silence of the other authorities and the conduct of trahan must enable us to choose between these contradictory statements of dio and indeed compel us to reject this unsubstantial charge against the virtue of platina the other ladies of the imperial household were equally without reproach and life at the palace was harmonious and uneventful emperor and empress moved about rome without guards and entertained or were entertained by their friends in a simple and unceremonious way but Trahan had little love for the atmosphere of a palace, and an outbreak in Dacia, two years after his arrival in Rome, gave him an excuse to return to the camp. He took Hadrian with him, and remained in Dacia a year. In the year 103 he rejoined Platina at Rome, but the war broke out afresh shortly afterwards and it now took him three years to subdue the province and link it to the empire by a great bridge over the danube he returned in 107 and spent seven years in rome before he set out on his final journey in the year 114 the prolonged absence of the emperor threw a good deal of responsibility on Plotina, and it would be of great interest, if it were possible, to trace her share in the vast work which was done for the city and the empire at that time. This, unfortunately, we cannot do. There were able counsellors left at Rome in Trahan's absence, and no doubt most of the work was directly controlled by Trahan during his stay in Rome from 107 to 114. We know only that he conferred freely with Plotina, and that he left great power to her when he went abroad. We can, therefore, only regard her, in a general way, as contributing to the prosperity and progress that characterized the reign of her husband. She kept Rome tranquil and content, and no doubt followed with close interest the great improvements which Trahan commanded. The neck of hill which linked the Capitoline to the Quirinal in the heart of Rome was cut away, and a fine forum, or broad street, with sheltered colonnade on either side, was constructed on the cleared ground between the hills. As previous emperors had already made slight extensions of the old forum, the citizens of Rome now had, in the centre of the city, a magnificent corso running out toward the great circus, in the porticos of which the packed dwellers of the Subura on one side and Velabrum on the other could lounge and take the air with comfort. Nor was this a mere meretricious concession to their entertainment. Trahan was equally attentive to their education. A beautiful basilica, two public libraries, one for Greek and one for Roman letters, 
and other splendid buildings were raised along the sides of the new forum, and statues of marble and bronze were brought from all parts, even from the palace, to adorn it. Other cities of the empire shared in the generosity and public spirit of the new reign. Harbors were constructed for the increase of commerce, fresh roads were flung across the intervening country, and many towns were enriched with stimulating public edifices. Nor were the social needs of the empire less regarded than the material. Previous emperors had given a scanty practical expression to the doctrine of the brotherhood of men, which the Stoic philosophy was disseminating. Trahan gave a great extension to this new philanthropy, as we learn from the inscriptions that have been found in the soil of Italy. It is estimated that 300,000 poor and orphaned children were fed by charity or imperial aid in Italy alone. The lot of the slave was improved, and the school system of the empire became better than any that has since appeared in Europe until the second half of the nineteenth century. Men were returning to the sobriety of their fathers, and were tempering it with the new spirit of peace and mercy, and a regard for culture. Morality improved, and character became a qualification for office, the one open scandal of the long reign, an intrigue of the Vestal Virgins with three young knights, was punished with all the rigor of the old Roman law. We must be content to know that Plotina had her part in this noble work of restoring the jaded frame of the empire, and refrain from attempting to measure her particular influence. By the year 114, the administration ran so smoothly, and the western world was so settled, that Trehan turned his attention to the east. The Parthians had been interfering in the affairs of the Ethiopians, who were vassals of Rome, and Trehan saw in this a pretext of establishing more strongly, if not enlarging, the eastern frontier of the empire. He had never been in the east, and the deep attraction of its ancient cities and decadent mysticism gave a cultural interest to his expedition. He took with him Plotina and Matidia, his niece. Marciana seems to have died before this time, and Hadrian had married Sabina, the daughter of Matidia. Hadrian, and probably his wife, accompanied them. The path to the east for the Roman lay through Athens, where Plotina and her companions would survey the decaying splendor of the Greek civilization in which they had long been interested. Envoys from the Parthians met Trahan there, and tried to disarm him, but he dismissed them, and pushed on to the field in which he trusted to win fresh laurels. They reached Antioch at the end of the year, and had, during their stay in that metropolis of oriental vice and luxury, a novel experience. A great earthquake shook the city, and even the house in which the emperor lodged. He was forced to make his escape by the window. The accounts of their later movements are meagre, and we can only imagine Plotina passing with wonder through the strange spectacles of Western Asia. During the spring and summer an indecisive campaign was waged against the Parthians, and Trahan returned to Antioch for the winter. 
In the spring of the year 116, the emperor set out again for Mesopotamia. He passed down the Euphrates, took the Parthian capital, sailed on the Persian Gulf, and even directed a longing eye over the ocean in the direction of India. The spirit of Alexander breathed in him as he trod this theatre of the historic conquerors, but the burden of age and an increasing infirmity put a reluctant limit to his ambition. He had, in fact, passed the range of his powers and distended too far the frontier of the empire. In the following year he became weaker, and the eastern tribes advanced with spirit. Leaving the task to his generals, the emperor turned towards Italy. How far Plotina had accompanied her husband on these remote journeys we are not informed. It would not be surprising, or out of harmony with the general custom of the time, if she covered the whole or the greater part of the territory with him. However that may be, we find her with Trahan and Hadrian at Antioch, once more in the course of the year 117. Trahan was seriously ill, and had to abandon all hope of settling the eastern question. He maintained the troops at the frontier, left Hadrian at Antioch as legate of the east, and slowly and sadly moved towards Europe. His tall frame was bent with age, his hair was white, his limbs made heavy with dropsy, and numbed with incipient paralysis. When they arrived at Selinus, a small town on a precipitous rock of the Cilician coast, only a few hundred miles from Edessa, his illness increased, and he died in the month of August 117, in the sixty-third year of his age. The exact truth about Plotina's conduct at the time of Trahan's death will never be known, but an impartial analysis of the statements made by the chroniclers cannot discover any clear ground for dissatisfaction. Dio, whose authority on this point is claimed to be considerable, since his father was then governor of the province of Cilicia, first insinuates a suggestion of poison in the usual form of an unsubstantial rumor, and then insists that Plotina formed a letter in Trahan's name, nominating Hadrian his successor in the imperial power. The writer of the sketch of Hadrian in the Historia Augusta, Spartianus, carries the legend further. He describes how Plotina put a confidant in the bed of the dead emperor, drew the clothes about him, and directed him to murmur, in a feeble voice, to the assembled officials that he wished Hadrian to succeed him. This second version is wholly negligible. It comes only from an anonymous writer of the fourth century who excites our distrust at all times by his extravagant and unsupported statements. The latest commentators on his work warn us that his aim is prurient and his method devoid of scruple. The authority of Dio, on the other hand, must not be exaggerated. His father might purvey gossip to him like any other Greek or Roman and his story of the forged letter or forged signature to a letter might easily be a piece of local gossip plotina was evidently anxious to secure the succession for hadrian and one may well admit that she concealed her husband's death until hadrian arrived at selinus 
that concealment would easily give rise to conjectures. Servius naturally forces on his readers the more romantic version, but more sober writers acquit Plotina of anything more than a formal use of Trahan's name after his death. The suggestion of poison is frivolous. Trahan had been ailing for months, and his assiduous travelling in a climate so different from that to which he had been accustomed all his life must have worn him out. He arrived in Asia Minor in the sweltering and dangerous month of August, and a touch of the enteric fever which so commonly overcame the European in the insanitary east of the time put an end to his life. Platina had for some time urged him to nominate Hadrian as his successor. We must not hastily infer from his reluctance that he thought Hadrian unfit to succeed him. He had just left him in a position of the gravest responsibility, and must have appreciated what a great historian calls Hadrian's vast and active genius but he may not have deemed it proper for him to dictate to the Senate how they should exercise their power of choice. What actually occurred is certainly obscure. A letter was dispatched to the Senate after Trahan's death, in which Hadrian was nominated, and Dio says that the signature was put to this letter by Plotina. One would imagine that such a deception as Dio represents it to be would easily be detected and resented by Hadrian's powerful enemies in the Senate. It is probable that, as Merival supposes, the letter was really dictated by Trahan, and the signing of it by Plotina was only formal. We may admit Dio's narrative of facts, yet believe that the Empress was merely carrying out Trahan's will. On the other hand, there is no reason to quarrel with or put a base interpretation on her zeal for the succession of Hadrian. We shall see how well he maintained the sound work of Trahan. He was at once summoned to Selinus to consult with Plotina and with the elderly senator Atianus, who had been his guardian, together with Trahan, and had been as zealous as the empress in urging his advancement. They decided that Hadrian must return to his post at Antioch, and Plotina set out for Rome with the ashes of her husband in a golden urn. The last resting place of Trahan was under the magnificent column which still bears witness in Rome to his many victories, and for centuries afterwards the most flattering compliment that the senators could pay to an emperor was to cry that he was more fortunate than Augustus and better than Trahan. Platina lived at Rome for four years after the death of her husband. The first year was, as we shall see, one of great anxiety and trial. There was much discontent at Hadrian's accession, and before long his reign was stained by the execution of four of the most distinguished nobles. Matidia died in the following year, and it was known to all Rome that Sabina lived unhappily with Hadrian. It is said that Plotina continued to have an active share in the administration of the empire, though she must now have been in or near her seventh decade of life. Dio places her death in the year 121. Hadrian was in Gaul at the time, 
and the luxuriance of his mourning gave encouragement to the libelers. He went into deep mourning, breathed a passionate grief in a beautiful poem, and ordered the building of a temple for the cult of the divinity which he conferred on her. In Nimes, where he was staying at the time when her death was announced, he raised the superb mausoleum which kept her name for ages in the mind of Europe. It is both pleasant and legitimate to believe that there was neither rhetorical display nor the memory of an irregular love in the princely mourning of Hadrian over the death of his patroness. Apart from his own indebtedness to her, the world owed her much. She had been at least a most worthy and helpful companion of a great emperor, a type of womanhood to which the eyes of Roman matrons might happily be directed. On the day when her inanimate frame was borne from the palace to the funeral pile, men could repeat that she had in truth left that home of temptation as she had entered it. The saner and sunnier life of the vast empire was, in part, her monument. End of section 11